Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. On this occasion, our guest is David Margalik of Vanity Fair magazine and author of Elizabeth and Hazel, Two Women of Little Rock, the story of the two people captured in an iconic photograph by the late IU journalism teacher and photographer Will Counts. David, welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Owen. You grew up in northeast Connecticut. Your father was for many years a doctor. What in your childhood contributed toward your being a journalist, a writer, and a historian? Well, I never really thought about that. I mean, I think I think probably um, growing up in a small town in the way that I did, growing up as a Jewish kid in a very small town where there was a very small Jewish population, um, I think that, that uh, I was always a little bit of an observer in a way, always kind of watching things and not really necessarily participating all that much, sort of on the periphery of the crowd. And so maybe... That accounts for it as much as anything else. What led you to Michigan? Well, the honest answer is that I got turned down at all the eastern schools that I applied to. Um, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I was very, I had a good time in Ann Arbor. And, and uh, I love these university communities. I haven't been in Bloomington before, but it reminds me of Ann Arbor. And that's a very good thing. At Michigan, you majored in history, took pictures for the Michigan Daily, which did you like better? I think that probably I liked history more. I've always been a student of history, an amateur student of history, um, in the sense that I never had the discipline to be a real historian like you, which is to go back and get a PhD and 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 really immerse myself in it. I was I've always been somewhere between a journalist and a historian. And from a very early age, I've been curious about historical things. I think that my father talked a lot about history. We had an old Edward R. Murrow record that had the sounds of the 30s and 40s and 50s, one of those I-can-hear-it-now records. And we talked about history a lot in my house. We were curious about it, my brothers and I. And uh, so it's always been very much a part of my consciousness. I've always, I've always gravitated towards it. Was it always American history? American history and European history, but mostly 20th century history, I guess. Although, of course, I like, I like the Civil War, too. A lot of racial history, a lot of history of minorities, um, the history of radicalism, uh, political movements. I've just instinctively been interested in it, in, in it from a very early age. Now, you were a student 1970 to 74? Do I have the At date? At U of M. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was a time of considerable ferment. Did that influence your uh, focus at all? I don't think so. I mean, I was very much involved in it, I suppose. But again, more as a watcher than, than, than as a protester. There was a picture in the, in the Michigan Daily of me being hit over the head by a cop uh, when protesters had stopped the traffic on Route 23 outside of Ann Arbor. But I was there as a photographer for the college paper. I wasn't, you know, I was sort of, my heart was with the protesters, but even then I was kind of standing on the edge rather than actually doing it, which is not to say that the policeman made any distinction between me and everybody else. He still hit me over the head with a billy club. Now, it does seem to me a little bit surprising with all the writing that you've done that you were a photographer at that point. 
Yeah, I was. I had an overly exalted view of writing in a way, and I was afraid of writing. I was intimidated. I didn't know if I could write well and quickly. And I was a decent photographer, and being a photographer was a way to hang around the paper and be around the news without testing my writing skills very much. So that was my that was my compromise. I did some writing in college. I did more when I got to law school because the alternative was being a lawyer, which I didn't want to be. So that's when I really kind of started to dig in on my writing. I was the editor of my law school newspaper. And that's when I started to move more away from photography and into writing. You did write an honors thesis at Michigan on New England textile mills. What drew you to that subject? Well, because I grew up in the corner of Connecticut that was filled with these wonderful old brick buildings from the 19th century, and they interested me. It was it was the history of my own town, my own community, and it was also the history of ethnic America, all these different waves of people coming in, Irish and French-Canadian and Eastern Europeans, and I was very interested in immigration. I mean, my family, all four of my grandparents were born in Eastern Europe, so I've always been interested in, in the process of, of people coming to America and making their way in America. And that was all encapsulated in the story of the mills. So that uh, was just a natural topic for me. Of course, you, you mentioned that, uh, having gone to law school um, at Stanford. Um, given the fact you didn't plan to practice as a lawyer, why did you go? Well, I always tell people that it was a prestigious way to procrastinate. <laughs> I had very generous parents, so I didn't have to go into debt. And I think I essentially thought that it would be three more years of undergraduate school. And it was a very nice alternative to going out into the workforce and actually earning a living. And it was, you know, it was a credential that I was told would come in handy. And oddly enough, it, it did come in handy. I mean, almost in spite of itself, I wasn't much of a, of a law student. I certainly wouldn't have been much of a lawyer, um, but the credential helped me in journalism immeasurably. It really expedited things for me. You wrote an article, I think it was in the New York Times magazine, about um, what was happening in law schools. It was several years after you had, had graduated. Did your experience at Stanford change your view about the law? I think that my experience at Stanford really didn't affect me that much one way or the other. I think that I kept I kept a certain distance from the place and the experience the whole time I was there. And I guess I was really sort of dilettantish. I knew that I wasn't going to be a lawyer, although I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I don't think that it penetrated deeply enough to affect my, my attitude towards the law. It's just that when I got – I mean – Oddly enough, when I got out of Stanford, um, the law degree was the credential that I had and it was a time when people were starting to cover law and the legal profession much more intensively than they had before. And so I had a natural entree into journalism. I really still couldn't write a good lead but I could write about the law and I knew more about the law than the next guy. I wasn't an authority on it but I knew the language of the law so that I could, you know, I could write about it and explain it to people. So it got me into mainstream journalism much more quickly than I would have otherwise. I didn't, you know, I didn't do um, an apprenticeship in five small towns, gradually working into larger markets. I worked for two legal newspapers, and within two and a half years, I was at the New York Times. So it was a very fast path. It, it turned out. How did you get the job at the New York Times? 
there was no there was nothing nothing elaborate about it. I had just put together some clippings at two different legal publications at the National Law Journal and the American Lawyer. And I think that even then I had developed as a kind of storyteller and that I wasn't writing strictly about legal doctrine. I was writing about people and how their lives were impacted by the law. I found a way to write about the law that I think was accessible to people. And so my stories had a kind of humanism to them that appealed to the times. And it it turned out to be a very comfortable fit. Um, They had just lost one of their law writers. And as I said, it just... It just sort of happened. I just kind of glided in there. I was very, very lucky because normally you needed five years' experience at large, uh, large big city papers elsewhere to, to get hired there, and I got there much more quickly. You mentioned finding the ability to tell a story. Where did, where did you find that? Because there's this argument that goes on. Journalists, Some journalists are born with the ability to tell stories. Others learn it in schools. Some of them absorb it from their families. That's a very good question that I've never been asked, Owen, and I don't, I don't really know. I think that it's, it's a matter of, again, I, I come back to the idea of being sort of an outsider and feeling like an outsider and having a, a sort of anthropological view about people and studying people and not necessarily being one to join in, feeling uncomfortable in crowds, you know, feeling uncomfortable cheering when everybody else is cheering, d- distancing myself. I think that's part of it. I don't know where the empathy comes from. I mean, I think that I write with a certain kind of empathy and I don't know I don't know what the source of that is. I guess I tend to think that that um, I have a rather ethnocentric view of, of life. And I think that that as a Jew, I think that I have a certain de- sense of detachment and, and maybe a sense of empathy for people's struggles. It's been a leitmotif, if that's not too pompous a word to use in connection with me. Um, it's really informed most of the books that I've done. I've always, I've liked to write about outgroups and minorities and 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 uh, unpopular people or people going up against the tide or whatever and it's just it's been just a natural fit for me. Let's talk about some of those books. I think your first was Undue Influence, the epic battle for the Johnson and Johnson fortune. Originally you were just reporting the trial, right? And yes. Originally, I did a story for the Times about the case, a curtain raiser on the trial, as we call it. You know, it was something that appeared before the before the case actually went to trial, and a book grew out of that. I mean, that's really the least characteristic of of the books that I've done. I mean, that happened to be a salacious story about the fight over the Johnson and Johnson fortune, where the Polish maid who'd married old man Johnson, the heir to the Johnson, to the Band-Aid fortune, um, had uh, inherited $500 million and his six ungrateful children tried to break the will. And uh, I don't think, I mean, apart from, you know, a bunch of very wealthy, wealthy and sort of irresponsible people going at each other, um, it wasn't a story that I loved. It was a story that I was well paid to do. Um, and it was... You know, it was an interesting project that took me far too long to do. 
I guess the reason I'm asking about this book, even though it's it's different from the others, is when did you see that it was going to become a book, something beyond the newspaper articles? When book publishers started to call me the day the, <laughs> the, day the story appeared. And then I, you know, it had all of the elements in it. It was a famous family. It was an enormous amount of money. It was the largest will contest in the history of New York. It was this guy, you know, marrying his former maid who was forty years younger than he. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it just, it just had all the elements, and there was a big auction for the book, and that's the reason. That's the only time in my career where that's ever happened. And I, you know, I thereupon spent the next seven years working on the book. Another of your books um, about the passions and peccadilloes of American lawyers called At the Bar, that presumably grew out of your time with the New York Times covering the legal profession. Yes. Um, after after I came back from the short leave that I took to write the Johnson & Johnson book, um, the Times initiated something called At the Bar, the, At the, the weekly At the Bar column where I wrote about the culture of lawyers and I had every week – I would write about some other facet of the profession. I would write about interesting lawyers and the goings-on at law firms and, and cases and, and I varied it a great deal and I did it for seven years. I wrote 300 and something columns and that's just a collection of my columns. I think, I think the column had quite a following in its day, although it died, it, it, it died a very quiet death and they never resurrected it. May have been one of those marriages that was just right for you, but not for somebody well, else. Well, yeah, I'd like to think that I was indispensable, but I'm not kidding myself. I don't know. <laughs> you've you've covered other trials as well: O.J. Simpson, uh, Lorena Bobbitt, William Kennedy Smith. Which which was the most interesting? Well, the O.J. trial was by far the most important and interesting. I mean, the Bobbitt case is a curiosity to people of a certain age. <laughs> And it was an interesting experience covering it for the New York Times because the Times didn't quite know what to do with it. You know, I mean, everybody – I won't review the facts of that case, but people remember it. And uh, it was one of these stories where um, it started very deep in the inside of the New York Times on A30 or whatever. And as the entire country started to talk about the case, it gradually migrated its way out to the front page so that when the verdict came down – um, it was a front page story, but that was just a curiosity and there was nothing really important about it. Similarly, the trial of William Kennedy Smith, the Kennedy nephew accused of rape, there was nothing really – you know, that was just a, a tabloid story elevated by the fact that it was a – that Kennedys were involved, whereas the OJ trial was, you know, an epic event, not just um, because it generated such enormous attention but because – it returned to the the perpetual uh, uh, issue of race in America, and um, you know was a very telling racial episode in the history of this country. Not not an angle that I could often write about because I was covering the testimony every day. Um, but you know the great undercurrent in that case that was really a seminal event. Was justice done in that case? No. I think the book that starts in a better way to get to some of the themes that you've written about. Um, strange Fruit, uh, Billy Holiday, Cafe Society, and an Early Cry for Civil Rights. It's a mix of so many things, race, Jewish identity, politics of the left, 
What drove your interest in particular? Well, all of all of those things, Owen. Um, that's that was one of those wonderful, happy coincidences that happen um, occasionally in a writer's life, where everything sort of comes together on a topic that no one's ever thought to write about. Um, I knew the song "Strange Fruit." It hit me like a like a two by four the first time I heard it. I had no idea that. It was what it was, a song about a lynching sung by a young black singer in 1938 or 1939 named Billie Holiday. So the song always interested me, but I also learned very early on that the song had been written by Abel Mirapol and that Abel Mirapol was the man who, with his wife, adopted the two Rosenberg sons, the sons of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, after the parents were executed in 1953. So it brought together race, it brought together the 1950s and radical culture and communism and American communism and Jewish radical culture because the Mirapoles were communists. And uh, I knew Robbie, I, I knew the Mirapole sons when they grew up. I'd written about one of them already. So there were a lot of different angles to that story that appealed to me. And I just started puttering around with it. I went to the library one day and called up what I could about it. There had never been anything very good written about it. And the book itself is a very – was originally an article in Vanity Fair that was a, that was blown up into a book. I mean it was puffed up into a book. The book is not that much longer than the original article. But it made a great impression on people um, and and I think is still kind of reverberating out there and taught in colleges. And the song – the song is a very powerful statement about American culture in the 1930s and, and really a, a sort of a, a landmark in the history of protest songs. What did you learn from that – from doing that book that you hadn't expected? You know, I, I was reminded about the, the strong nexus between black and Jewish history, which is something that I've always known about and felt – but it was particularly apparent here because Billie Holiday sang the song and immortalized the song and performed it in this incomparable way. Um, and yet the song was written by a Jew. It was staged by a Jew um, at Cafe Society in Greenwich Village. It was recorded by a Jew, Billy Crystal's uncle. Uh, because Columbia, which was Billie Holiday's normal label, thought the song was too hot to handle and wouldn't and wouldn't record it. So it was it was a reminder of that. I learned about how the song resonated um, in certain circles. The song was actually more popular in kind of white radical circles than it was in black circles. So that you know that that was an interesting thing. It wasn't you know as, as one black scholar said to me, you know, when when we went out, we didn't want to hear a, we didn't want to hear a song about lynching. So it you know it 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 was. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing that I learned just about how its appeal was. It's a, it had a very powerful appeal, but the appeal was narrow, and uh, and just how just how unusual a song it was for its time. Now, you know, you can go into a Starbucks and hear it. I've actually heard it in Starbucks in the background. Um, and I but, suspect many people not knowing what it really is about. Yeah, so. that's right. And, you know, that's kind of startling because when you first 
to think about what that song sounded like when she first recorded it, you know, about strange fruit, black bodies hanging from the poplar trees. It's pretty extraordinary at the time and an incredibly courageous thing for a young black performer um, to do in the late 1930s. It also introduced me to the to the history of lynching. You know, um, it's since been written about more, and there's that very powerful book called Beyond Sanctuary of lynching pictures that, that was a traveling exhibit. But the whole phenomenon of lynching and, and how lynching was a theme in American history and when it started and when it peaked and all of that, I didn't know anything about that. In fact, by the time Strange Fruit came along, lynching had sort of almost stopped by the late 1930s. Um, it had peaked many years earlier. And I remembered that, you know, I mean, it's interesting that perhaps the most famous lynching photograph of all was taken in Indiana, um, in southern Indiana. This is the picture that everybody knows. It was not, as it turns out, I'm pretty sure the song, the, the, the photograph that inspired Mirapol to write the song, but it's the picture that everyone knows from Marion, Indiana. Beyond Glory, Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling. Again, issues of race and anti-Semitism. What did you expect to find from Schmeling? Did you expect a more black and white story? My my hunch was um, that Max Schmeling um, had been sanitized since the war and that um, simply um, simply um, by having gotten along um, under the Third Reich once Hitler came to power that his record had to have been more compromised than he let on and then history, than history had, had portrayed. And that turned out to be very much the case. Um, there, were many, there weren't many heroes in Germany in the 1930s. And Schmeling had sort of grown up to be um, and come to be seen as an avuncular anti-Nazi figure. Um, that's the way that he'd been treated in the years after the fight in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and he was sort of seen as a good German. And in fact, he was much more compromised than that. He had been an apologist for the regime. Every time he came to New York um, for various fights, he was asked what was going on in Germany. And one of the things that really surprised me about my research for that book was that, you know, people think that that um, Hitler didn't make his intentions known very quickly, and in fact, that's quite that's quite untrue. I mean, it's it's it, it the catastrophe that befell German Jewry happened almost immediately, almost immediately after Hitler came to power. Jews were being thrown out of every profession in Germany, and from academia and medicine and law and almost everything, they were being marginalized within weeks and months of the of the Nazis coming in. And Schmeling, as one of the foremost representatives of Germany, was asked about this whenever he came to New York, which, of course, was the capital of the Jewish capital of the world, really, back then. And uh, he always had some kind of temporizing or exculpatory language to explain what was going on in Germany. He was really an apologist for the regime. And so I was much less sympathetic to him. And I think that my book corrects the record on him to a considerable degree. I mean, one of the great ironies, one of the things that's really infuriating about uh, 
that I learned in doing that book was that after the war, Schmeling was given a Coca-Cola distributorship and became a very wealthy man all over again in Germany um, by the Coca-Cola company, a southern company that would never hire Joe Lewis to do endorsements. Um, so Schmeling, you know, got treated much better by the Americans than Joe Lewis did. It's really, really an outrage. Just out of curiosity, the, the New York Times has been criticized for not having um, sufficiently reported the Holocaust in depth. Did you see any kid gloves treatment of the New York Times with Schmeling? Yeah, well, I did. I'll tell you the thing that, that, that startled me the most um, about the New York Times' coverage and it's actually reproduced in the book. It, it so startled me that I reproduced it in the book that the day that all of the Jews were kicked out of German boxing, the Jews were the managers in the just as they were in New York. In Germany, they were the managers and they were the promoters and there were also Jewish boxers back then. And with one fiat, one you know, one signature, they were they were banished from the sport. Um, I mean, it would be as if blacks were suddenly banned from basketball in this country. That's a slight exaggeration, but it, you know, they were an important element in the business, and they were just kicked out overnight. And uh, the New York Times played that story on the back page of its sports section under a one-column headline below an eight-column headline about a horse race. That was the way that they covered the story. The Times was very skittish about being seen as too Jewish a paper, and uh, this was just another example of it. I mean, the way that they undercovered that story was, was just appalling. Let's take a break here and listen to um, some music that you have selected from Edvard Grieg's Holberg Suite. Um, why did you choose this music? Well, I've never been asked to choose music for a show before, Owen, and I just thought that this is very ruminative music. Um, it's slightly melancholy and very beautiful and thought-provoking, and um, I thought it complemented some of the things that we would talk about today. The Sarah Band from Edvard Grieg's Holberg Suite for Piano, Opus 40, chosen by our guest on Profiles today, David Margalik, contributing editor at Vanity Fair. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from 
Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. A book that's drawn quite a bit of attention in Indiana is Elizabeth and Hazel, Two Women of Little Rock. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, the two women in the iconic picture by the late IU professor Will Counts had very different stories and yet a story that they shared during the integration of Central High School and Little Rock. The picture is iconic. Uh, It's on the cover of your book. It's been on the cover of several other books in the last couple of years. I think you mentioned that you visited a historic exhibit of the high school and saw the picture and got interested in it. Uh, Did you see a book there right away? Well, in fact, of course, um, I knew that picture intimately before I went to Little Rock. It's just one of those pictures that you know, and and it was sort of emblazoned, ingrained in my brain from a very early age, that picture. I couldn't even tell you the first time that I saw it. You know, I, I must have seen it when I was nine or ten years old, and I never forgot it. It's like, it's like the picture of the Vietnamese girl running down the road, or it's like the picture of the little boy in the Warsaw Ghetto with his hands up. Um, it's just one of those images that you never forget. Having said that, I never thought that I would write a, write anything about it. It hadn't occurred to me. But I went to Little Rock for Vanity Fair to do a Bill Clinton slash Paula Jones story, if people remember Paula Jones, um, one of the famous bimbo eruptions in Clinton's career. And Miss um, J- Jones elected not to give me an interview. Um, but while I was in Little Rock, I knew that I had to go to Central High School. I had always known about Central High School. And across the street from Central High School was this little museum. The visitor's center was in the old gas station that Elizabeth passed that morning on her way to school. And as soon as you walked into the visitor's center, there was the picture. Now, when I say the picture, it was not Will Counts's picture, believe it or not, um, there were two or three photographers who were, you know, there were a lot of photographers who were there that morning, and at least three of them captured the same moment. Will's is the most famous, but it wasn't the one that was hanging at the visitor's center. I tried to figure out why that was, and I talked to the exhibit designer, and I think that it just happened to be that they saw the other picture first, and the other picture is square rather than rectangular. Will's is horizontal, and the other one was taken with a square negative camera, a two and a quarter, two and a quarter camera, and so that was the one that they used. But it's you know essential. It's essentially the same image, and it's there as soon as you walk in, and much to the unhappiness of many of the people in Little Rock who are very tired of this image and don't want it hung around their necks and you know, are angry that it's continually hung over them. And yet there it is. It has to be there at the entrance to the visitor's center. And But at the visitor's center, it was juxtaposed with Will's second picture because in the, in the shop, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the store at the visitor's center, um, there was the poster of Elizabeth and Hazel as grown women taken in 1997 by Will on the 40th anniversary of the events in Little Rock. Showing the two of them, it had appeared on the front page of the Little Rock newspaper, the Democrat Gazette, 
Will had brought the two of them back together again. Uh, it was a special project of his and sort of a sentimental urge of his to find these two women and bring them together. And he took this picture of them. They, they had met only you know a few minutes earlier for the first time. And he brought the two of them together, and there they are standing next to one another, smiling and seemingly, you know, old friends. And it was the picture that appeared on the front page of the paper was turned into a poster by the very zealous um, city fathers who wanted to, wanted, who were hungry for a symbol of racial reconciliation. And what better way to capture that sentiment than to bring these two historic antagonists together? So the picture was turned into a poster that high school kids would buy and high school teachers would hang in their homerooms and everything. And there it was in the shop at the visitor's center. And I was I was really astonished to see it. I had no idea that I knew about that white girl with the screaming ugly face, um, screaming various epithets. And I knew about the, 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 the very subdued and solemn and dignified black girl behind the sunglasses in the white dress. But the idea that the two of them had ever reconciled, and that's how the poster was labeled, it said reconciliation. Um, And I thought, my God, here's a real story. How did these two people, these archetypal antagonists, ever come together? And that's, you know, that's something I wanted to examine. So that was the genesis of it. I never thought about writing a book. I just thought that it would be an interesting magazine story. And so I started to make inquiries while, while I was in Little Rock. Did the fact that you had once briefly been a news photographer affect the way you looked at those pictures and saw a story there? Well, I think that probably I appreciated – I know how difficult it is to have taken a picture like that. Will was 26 or 27 years old. Looked really thin in he a way that really, yeah, was so different yes, from what he was later. Right, because there's a, a picture of him that I have in the book of him as a young man on that assignment. And uh, I, I, I appreciated the difficulty, the difficulties that he faced that day. He's taking that picture walking backward. You know, I mean, the events didn't stop for him. He's walking backwards. The lighting was tricky. Capturing the action was tricky. Um, focusing was tricky. So I suppose that I had a kind of technical appreciation for what he had done that a non-photographer wouldn't have had. But I don't think it was necessary in any way. I mean, the image is the image, and it's just, as I say, it's, it's one of those things that sticks with you. Was it hard to write about Elizabeth and Hazel, or perhaps a better way to put it, um, to get them to talk? Because these were people that were not used to being in the media eye, and Elizabeth's experience when she was in the media eye was, was uh, tragic, I think you could say. Well, the two of them, you know, when I spoke with them, which was in 1999, two years after the reconciliation picture was taken, the two of them had spent those two years getting to know one another. And very improbably, they'd become really confidants and friends. And they spent a lot of time together. They appeared before a lot of groups. Each of them is kind of an aberration in her respective family. Neither of them had anyone else really to talk to. They filled a void in one another's lives. I mean, it was the most improbable thing. Will was a clear... I didn't know Will well, although I met him at, um, at one of his appearances with Elizabeth and Hazel. 
And Will was a very sentimental man, clearly. He was a lovely man. I, I have the fondest memories of him. And I think that he rather unrealistically thought that he could bring these two together and they would live happily ever after. And damned if they didn't originally for the next couple of years. And so they were, in a sense, they were ready to tell their story. They had even discussed doing a book together. Um, By the time I came along, that project had fallen apart for various reasons. But I think that each of them wanted her story told. Um, And so in that sense, um, I didn't have difficulty initially convincing them to meet with me um, and to talk with me. I thereupon blew it. Um, I screwed up because I, I had thought, I think with the naivete of a white person on racial matters, and I think, I won't speak for all whites, but I think a lot of white people are very naive about these things. I thought that, that Elizabeth would be more difficult to win over, that Elizabeth would see me as another white guy and, and be reluctant to speak with me, and that Hazel would take to me as a white person, but it was quite the opposite. Elizabeth was much more willing to speak um, because Elizabeth is more of a student of history in a way than Hazel. Um, and Elizabeth recognized that, this, that the story of this picture was an important one. The picture was important symbolically. And their stories separately and together um, was part of the iconography, really, of the civil rights movement, the story of the civil rights movement and should be told and should be told well. I think that Hazel was more skeptical and Hazel was more skeptical of me because she thought that, and I had exacerbated this by sort of, she thought, cozying up to Elizabeth in in, in our initial encounter and reminding Elizabeth of the historic alliances between blacks and Jews, something that Hazel, who was largely self-taught, had come to read about. She knew that Jews and blacks together formed the NAACP in large part. And she just thought that, that, that I was going to take Elizabeth's side and that I wouldn't be an honest broker in this. And so I met with them one day when I was in Little Rock after I discovered this poster. And then for the next seven or eight years, Hazel never spoke to me again. Hazel refused to meet with me again. And so the book Elizabeth and Hazel was really only just Elizabeth at that point. I met with Elizabeth many, many times. I went down to Little Rock repeatedly. We spent hours and hours together. Elizabeth, as I said, felt that she owed it to history to tell her story. And it was a very powerful story. Elizabeth really knew the depths of despair. Elizabeth had a terrible time that day in that picture but the nightmare moved inside the school for the rest of the school year after that when she, when she and all the black students were terribly harassed and humiliated, thrown down the stairs, thrown into lockers, um, had, having things heaved at them, scalded in the showers and all of that. And Elizabeth, who has a predisposition to depression and melancholy in any case, I think you know, took years to recover from that. And really hit the depths, was, you know, tried to kill herself a couple of times, was on disability for many years, was unemployed for many years, never married, had two sons um, out of wedlock. And that's a whole other story that I describe in the book. 
and had come around by the and, and made great strides by the time that I had by the time I found her and wanted her story told. Hazel, as I said, required much more convincing, even though Hazel's story is equally inspiring in a way, because Hazel didn't stay that little redneck girl. Hazel was only 15 when that picture was taken. She wanted to sort of dress very sexy and look very mature. And so she's, you know, for better or for worse, been judged as an older person all these years. She was an immature 15-year-old kid when that picture was taken. And she fairly quickly realized, certainly quickly by the standards of the South in the 1960s, that she had done something terribly wrong. And and um, in 1962 or 1963, by which point she was 20 years old and she had two little children, and she realized, she'd come to realize that she was watching all the civil rights stuff on, on the old black and white television with rabbit ears that she had in her trailer and she realized that she had made her own ignoble contribution to what was going on. She was watching fire hoses and, and, and German shepherds attacking black protesters. But she had had her moment too. And, you know, she had a debt to pay. So she called – she looked up Eckford, Elizabeth's last name. She looked up Eckford in the phone book and called the first Eckford that she found, which was Elizabeth's grandfather – and asked for Elizabeth and was eventually connected to Elizabeth and apologized and said, I'm the girl in that picture and I just want you to know how sorry I am. And that's, you know, that was an extraordinary thing for a 20-year-old southern white girl to do in 1962. All one has to do is think about George Wallace and, and next door Alabama. That's right. right. I mean, that's when all that stuff was going on. And and uh, so I realized that Hazel's, Hazel's story was – complicated and rich and inspiring in its own way. And the object was to get both of them uh, to talk and braid their stories together. And, you know, shortly after I spoke with them together, the two of them, I didn't realize it at the time, but people at IU had had a big head start on me because when they were making their joint appearances, they came here I think it was in 1999, but I'm not sure. I think that's right. And and one of the places they came was – I don't know whether it was this studio, but it was WFIU. Yes. I mean they they spoke on the radio and they had a joint appearance at the auditorium and people could see that there were tensions between them that I was oblivious to when I was with them, although – I should have known. I asked how they were getting along and Hazel said something about let's – well, let's say that the honeymoon is over and we're taking out the garbage. One might have thought that would be a sufficient clue to me, but I was – you know, I just – it passed me. I only noticed it later in my notes. Um, But, you know, the the wish that – the earnest wish of Will Counts for everything to be nicely neat and clean and reconciled proved to be, you know, unfortunately naive. There were tensions between the two of them. Elizabeth thought that Hazel had never come fully clean. There were holes that Elizabeth spotted in Hazel's story. Elizabeth subjected Hazel to an exacting kind of examination and found her wanting and started to treat her. Hazel felt disrespectfully, including that, you know, she would grab a microphone or she would interrupt her or whatever. And shortly after that, the two of them stopped talking to one another. And they've not talked to one another for 10 years, for more than 10 years at this point, despite what persists as a very strong emotional bond between the two. 
I mean, one can sense that they want to talk to one another, but they're each too proud and stubborn, and it hasn't happened yet. Although I I know that my book has changed the dynamic some between them. So um, for the first seven or eight years of my research, I was talking only to Elizabeth. And then in 2007, um, a version of my story appeared in Vanity Fair, again, only on the website, not actually in the magazine. And at that point, I think Hazel could see that I didn't bear her the ill will that she thought I would as this white Jewish Yankee guy who was just another person who would come around to abuse her. And that wasn't the way that I felt about her. I had I had documented, in fact, how she'd worked with the black community, worked with underprivileged black kids, worked with unwed mothers, spent a lot of time working in that community. Her husband used to make fun of her and say, you're spending all your time making up for that picture. And she said, it's true. It's true. And I think that the story in Vanity Fair, along with the intervention of a woman named Linda Monk, who was originally to write to have written their book together, uh, I think I think uh, Linda also helped persuade Hazel to speak with me, and so at that point, Elizabeth and Hazel um, was going to be fully realized. I would get both of their stories, I would interview them both very intensively, and then braid the two together, and that's what I did. It's an unusual book, in a way, that it has no ending. Things are not neatly tied up. Was that hard to write, how to figure out to doing that? Um, it wasn't hard to figure out because it was the right thing to do, Owen. It was the only way to end it um, inconclusively. I was determined not to sugarcoat this story. I didn't want this story to be the help or Mississippi burning or one of these irresponsible representations and sanitizings of history. I wanted this, I mean, I think that this picture 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago, represented the racial fissure in this country, and that chasm remains, and it's it's symbolized, I mean, it's it's flipped on its head now in a way, in the sense that Hazel is the person who feels aggrieved now and not Elizabeth. I mean, it's rather extraordinary that Elizabeth is willing to be interviewed on all of this, um, Elizabeth is willing to be be photographed with Hazel, and it's Hazel who feels hurt. Hazel feels that that the black community never believed her, never trusted her, and the white community never forgave her for embarrassing them and not going away the way they wanted her to. So Hazel is the one who's nursing her wounds. Hazel is the one who feels that Elizabeth has hurt her. I mean, it's rather an extraordinary thing if you look at that original picture to think that it's the white girl now who feels aggrieved. Um, But it just, you know, the larger theme, of course, is that the races still have, you know, enormous problems to work out. And I didn't want the book to represent anything but that. And so in that sense, um, it was easy to, it was, I didn't, I didn't want there to be some kind of um, sentimental ending. And I didn't want to orchestrate one either. I didn't feel that that was my role. And so I never, until the very last moment, I never tried to bring these two women together. I didn't want to be part of my own story. And only at the very end did I do it at the behest of my photographer. There, He, he came to Little Rock with me and took contemporary pictures of the grown, you know, of the of the of Elizabeth and Hazel, each of whom is seventy years old now. They both turned seventy in the last few months, and he said, 
you have to get one more picture of them together. I mean, they owe it to history. They may never, you know, this may be the last chance ever to photograph these two iconic images, these two iconic figures together, and there should be one more picture of them. And reluctantly, I asked the two of them, and as I said, Elizabeth, the student of history, agreed that she had an obligation that that there should be a historical record of the two of them as as older women. One more picture, maybe the last picture. And it was Hazel who wouldn't agree. So that's why on the cover of the book, there's a tear between their two pictures. We didn't want to make it look as if they had come together when they hadn't. And it's not only a tear. They're looking in opposite directions. They're looking in opposite directions. But, you know, since the book came out, Elizabeth has written Hazel a letter of apology. Elizabeth has written Hazel. Now it's Elizabeth who's apologizing. And um, I knew that Elizabeth had sent the letter. Then Hazel told me she'd gotten the letter. I was kind of in the background lurking but trying not to stage manage things. And the last I knew, Hazel was trying to come up with a response and trying to figure out the proper thing to say and really wrestling with it. So it's just as you say, Owen, the story is not over. And I think the two of them are going to have to work out their own sort of modus vivendi. I don't know what it'll be, but I don't think that any of us can or should try to influence it anymore. I guess we can only hope that it does come about while they're both still with us. That would be nice. I'd like to see that too. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been David Margulik, the author of Elizabeth and Hazel, Two Women of Little Rock. David, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Owen. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us, and we close with more music from Edvard Grieg's Holberg Suite for Piano. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. program you just heard was recorded in February of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. 
Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.